Ryan, are you ready? Yeah, I think so. Hear me and stuff. The Marxist Project, are you ready? Yeah, I'm good. Right, it can be taught to anyone. Uh, it is intuitive to some degree, and it's not like an intelligence thing. And you know, we had some placards. One of them, which said the pretty factual point that Zionism is racism. You know, it's not just a moral stand; it's a political stand. What you're talking about is the role that Israel plays securing the interests of U.S. and British imperialism in the Middle East. And I would be talking about Iraq or Afghanistan or something today where I am. And I like understand these conflicts that have literally been going on since I was born. It's just like horrifying. It's not it's not British culture, it's just the world's culture. They love stories. They love this idea that there is this nation that looks like this. I think it's a distraction from the class struggle, to be honest. Hi everyone. Thank you for coming. Hey, thank you. Thanks for tuning to Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. In this episode, we're joined by a live studio audience on the International Leftist Discord server, in which they're celebrating 1,000 members. Rick Sanchez, the admin of the server, invited both myself, Shibby, and Ryan, the Zen Marxist, the co-host for the podcast, to come along and even try and get the Marxist Project as a special guest on a, on a live episode. So we're extremely grateful for the Marxist Project from YouTube to spend the time with us and allow us to interview him. So we ask him about his background, Agitpop, Marxism in general, and his experiences on YouTube. And we also spend a good hour, hour and a half on a Q&A session with the guest from the server. We had some really great, interesting questions on the Q&A. Definitely stick around for that. Towards the end, we talk about fascism. We talk about the elections that just happened. We talk about fighting imperialism from within the belly of the beast and also China. It's a genuinely interesting episode. And I'm not just saying that because it's my podcast. It really is like really interesting. You're going to get a lot out of it. So without further ado, let's dive into the interview with the Marxist Project. We always love to start off the, an episode with a background check and a guest because the listeners would like to know a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, you know, how you got into politics, what drawn you towards the left, how you got into YouTube, you know, all of that would be interesting just to get this episode going. Yeah, good questions, of course. I generally, I don't go into very like specific details about my personal background, but to that degree, I would say I mostly grew up in the United States. Originally, I'm from Russia, but most of my formative years and my education I spent here in, in America. And that actually kind of answers the question of what brought me to the left. My family, being from the former Soviet Union, already had pretty substantial exposure to socialist ideas. And that was kind of always like conversation around the kitchen table, so to speak. And uh, coming to America, you kind of get exposed to a very distorted almost like perverted notion of what socialism is, what the Soviet Union's history was. And uh, growing up, that kind of was just always so apparent to me. 
that there is one narrative in school and another one at home. And there was so much disunity there between the way that particular topic was discussed. And that really brought me to the left because I started looking into these things more thoroughly. And at first it was just stories from family members, but eventually it kind of became a more concerted effort to study both the history and the theory. So that's really my background into how I got into the left. I would say in the last few years, I've gotten a lot more serious about studying Marxism and really trying to approach it from as systematic and educational of a lens as possible. Yeah, I think that would be a good, concise answer to those questions. I don't know if there's anything else you want me to talk about. Awesome. Thank you for that. Just an interesting point with your family being from the Soviet Union. And you talked about this narrative it was different at home than it was in school but i was actually on facebook the other day and i had like an old work colleague pop up on my post saying that like he was from the soviet union and like i wasn't so like he thinks that the soviet union was like terrible and communism's terrible so i just want people to recognize that distinction that you do hear people condemning the soviet union who are from these states but you're also an example of some of the many people from the soviet union who are saying that it's a success and i think that that's largely because of I guess, were your parents more politically aware than the average liberal? So thank you for that answer anyway. So with that being said, like, we just want to say that we love your channel. I think that I first saw it probably like a year ago. Anybody who like comes over and tries to like engage with education on the left, I think is going to stumble across it. So since like I saw it a year ago, you've gained like over a dozen thousand followers, subscribers. If you haven't subscribed, go and subscribe to the Marxist Project. You have received a lot of support from comments and of all my like comments, upvotes, shares, even Patreon support, which is great. So I think that all of that, though, what I'm saying is because largely thanks to like what I believe is like how well presented your educational, analytic, historical videos are, which are always like supported by like actual source material. Like you've always got the links in there. So I just wonder. Like, why did you start the Marxist Project as a YouTube channel? Like, what kind of feedback have you gotten? And like, how did that compare to your expectations before you went into it? Yeah, I think for me, it really began, like I said, when I a few years ago decided to take on this uh, task of learning about Marxism more systematically. And I think it was around the time that I was uh, finishing reading volume one of Capital. I realized as someone who greatly benefits from like visual learning and audio based learning, I would go online to try and find resources to complement the texts that I was reading, including, you know, the original stuff by Marx, but also the secondary content. Uh, written by other scholars. And it really occurred to me that there is uh, a sort of a, a missing element in the left in terms of the content that was being produced, especially on YouTube. And there weren't these types of videos, which you know, the kinds of videos that I'm essentially putting out now, where there's an emphasis on the theory going back to like the originals, the uh, the classic elements, the fundamentals, as my series is called. And it's broken down in simple, sort of digestible parts, hopefully at any rate. And it draws directly from those passages. So it was actually me recognizing that I didn't have that many videos to watch while reading Capital Volume 1. Uh, that kind of made me think, well, maybe I will start something like this on my own. And for me, at the, at the beginning, it was kind of like a, like a way to process my own thoughts, I guess. And uh, I, I don't know. Uh, how many people might be familiar with 
the experience of teaching in general, but uh, as you teach, you kind of learn the subject even better yourself because you're forced to uh, recapitulate the main arguments and sort of present the information as succinctly as possible to be efficient with how you're presenting the, uh, the overall theory. So yeah, it was kind of like an internal project for a while. Um, and in the beginning, yeah, there was like some interest, but really things started to kick off. I agree to an extent that it is because of the format, but I also just feel like the interest in these topics has been growing over the last few years. So I often just feel like I'm riding this wave of people who are already interested in this uh, type of information. And all I'm really doing is uh, providing a space and content uh, in that kind of area that is already growing uh, by itself. But in terms of feedback, it's been really surprisingly positive. I kind of expected it to be somewhat mixed because, you know, Marxism is a still a very controversial philosophy, school of thought. But I think it's largely because I'm sticking to, like I was saying, sticking to like the original source material a lot. And it is because I'm sourcing a lot of my content and I'm like spending time being very close to the texts, essentially. But it doesn't really leave much room for people who are just going in there to say the usual stuff, you know, like Venezuela is bad and like communism killed 100 million people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really add up to the videos as I'm presenting them. So in order for people to to critically engage with my content, I feel like they need to critically engage with the text because I'm just heavily relying on it. And uh, as a result, it's been mostly just leftists um, watching my content and I guess finding some value in it. And very little from the right overall. A, cu- a couple comments here and there with the usual stuff. And even a few comments that were productive in, in terms of discussing limitations maybe of the theory. But yeah, good feedback in general. Absolutely. Ryan, have you got any thoughts or distinctions from your experience? Because you've got a YouTube channel as well. Yeah, I do. I mean, I love the idea of learning through teaching. I think that's a great way of doing things. I've always thought of doing things that way, because like you say, it forces you to engage the material and you have to actually understand it yourself before you're able to teach things. So um, I love that idea. And um, also going back to what you said earlier about, you know, having personal experience with the Soviet Union, that must have been so much more helpful when dealing with sort of bourgeois propaganda in school, right? Because I imagine that all the other children there had no such experience that way. So you know, they're much more likely to accept what they're hearing in schools as being true, whereas you have that sort of inoculation uh, against sort of bourgeois propaganda from personal experience. So uh, that's that's great as well. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Uh, it really was about uh, noticing that there were discrepancies in the way that the Soviet Union was being talked about, and really even modern Russia, because uh, Oftentimes I would hear in school that Russia was still like a communist dictatorship or whatever. And to me, like uh, once once you're uh, confronted by this dominant narrative that's so blatantly wrong at face value, it really kind of makes you question the rest of the assumptions that are like peripheral to it. You know, so if the narrative about the Soviet Union is so off and inconsistent, then is the narrative about Marxism in general off? And that, yeah, like that environment of sort of implicitly questioning everything by nature of finding that one problematic area that really helped me personally sort of be political from a young age and uh, be very critically oriented. Awesome. I really wanted to say to you, you actually read 
capital volume one like power to you <laughs> that oh. is one dense text like that's no <laughs> easy like that's actually a milestone awesome and and as you said like that inspired you that's why you're a good comment as well that inspired you because not only did we able to understand these you know these thoughts and explicitly about capital and economic theory that Marx had, but you also wanted to share that and, and teach that to others. And in that teaching, uh, as you both clearly said, you become a better you know, practitioner yourself uh, because you're learning through the teaching. I've always said to others, start a podcast, you get interviews, you, you know, you speak to people, you're doing research yourself to produce good episodes, you know, anything like that, even just trying to focus on writing really does help like you know gather your thoughts and and find your voice and that's what we need to spread class consciousness out there to people that's that's why we're doing this we're not doing it for the good of our health we're doing it to to teach and inspire and radicalize others and so that we can you know become better comrades in the international proletarian struggle Good stuff there. I want to just come back to that a little bit because we're going to talk about and compare with maybe like other YouTubers out there. But we'll just talk about the elections for a minute because it's happened and everybody's like trying to let it all sink in. What's happened? You know, Biden's won over Trump. Let's just discuss that for a moment. Thought it would be important just like together, like we shared our thoughts on the electoral process for like our listeners. To give like a short sort of like Marxist principle take on like voting and US politics in particular. What did you personally make of like the candidates, the process and like more importantly, like how do you think like democratic elections of like public representatives would like look in like socialism in the future, just to like compare with what we're seeing here now? I think like that would be a good thought exercise to like help a comrades like gain a vision of the future after the revolution and then like compare with now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like that question. I like that because I think it prompts something that the left doesn't often do, which is sort of picture what the post-revolutionary society looks like. And we're often caught up in the crit- critique of capitalism, which is obviously where Marxism is probably the strongest. But yeah, this is a this is a really good question. Uh, I guess I'll start from the in the beginning about the candidates themselves, uh, and I know that there's <laughs> been some some divide there on the left between people who think that Biden is a better alternative or Trump. And uh, I think for the most part, I think most of us on the left can agree that that there isn't a massive distinction in the material sense, what's going to come of Biden and Trump's administration. I personally, this is just my my experience and my perspective. I, I do think that there is some value in a Biden victory in that I, I think that the, that the Trump administration was starting to signal an, a readiness to uh, criminalize certain political activity with its, you know, denunciation of Antifa and ca- its categorization of Antifa as uh, a terrorist organization. You know, I think that Obviously, all of that is complete bogus, but to the degree that the administration was ready to act on that and to the degree that we saw it do that in certain cities like uh, in Portland and out on the West Coast where we had like unmarked vans kidnapping protesters, uh, I have to ask myself, would it be easier to organize under Biden or under Trump? And to me, the answer is more or less clear, and that is that the Biden administration is going to be less overtly hostile to the real left 
And of course, it will continue to exert the same kinds of neoliberal pressures that we're already very familiar with. But I do feel like Trump administration for the left, it represented a very dangerous turn in the liberal order towards something that would have required a really concerted level of resistance that I'm not sure the left is ready for. Um, I think that we're not quite organizationally there. I'm not sure we're there in numbers, in theoretical readiness. So I I guess if I have to make a ruling, I think it's a more positive thing that Biden won because I feel like it gives us a little more time to prepare and to really organize ourselves. Because at least in the United States, we are still just at the beginning of organizing both leftist movements and labor and, uh, you know, student unions and, and all kinds of groups. I think that we're just, all of that is just now budding and we need time to do that. And in a space where that's even possible, I guess. But in terms of what elections might look like, Outside of a capitalist system, I think most people who followed the American elections are aware that there isn't really anything democratic about them. And not just in, in, in the traditional Marxist critique of, you know, capitalist liberal elections not being democratic, but just in the most literal and practical sense, the United States uh, electoral college system and its uh, first passive post uh, voting structure doesn't really reward uh, proportional representation at all. And I know some European countries are better about this, despite being liberal and capitalist themselves. Uh, but the United States, in my opinion, is particularly bad about having adequate public representation. Uh, and I think that's perfectly manifested in the fact that there really are only two nominal parties and arguably really only one party. How that would look different in a socialist society, maybe even a socialist society in America, I think, uh, and this is, again, more opinion than it is fact-based, but I think that one of the critical things will be uh, returning to or implementing a more proportional representation system, you know, one where uh, popular votes count more than they do now, because right now it's uh, easily manipulatable. And I think that really is exacerbated by the fact that in capitalist elections in general, there's already a predilection towards entanglement of financial elements where, you know, you've got campaign financing affecting the elections. All of that would be very much not present in, I think, a a representative system under socialism. And I actually, I spent some time talking about this in one of my videos, one of my earlier videos where I talk about, uh, you know, council democracy or Soviet democracy, depending on how you want to call it. And the idea of uh, a, a democratic system that's uh, it integrates the political and the economic. You know, uh, I think a lot of us are familiar with that idea of uh, you know having like factory workers elect representatives and uh, um, cooperatives elect representatives. You know, economic spaces as well as social and political spaces, and then having more vertical accountability instead of horizontal accountability. Whereas you know, in the American system, you've got like uh, the legislative and executive and judicial branches are supposedly you know uh, meant to balance each other out. But that sort of horizontality more or less excludes the American public from holding politicians accountable. And I think in socialism, it would be a heavier emphasis on the public's direct ability to uh, hold elected representatives accountable. And that could be done through the Soviet principle of recall, where you know representatives are held to a firm mandate and that they're elected on a very specific basis of what they need to accomplish. And if that isn't accomplished, you know, 
they are immediately recalled. So there's there's just a lot of different structural changes that could occur. I think the the biggest ones would be obviously eliminating a lot of the American institutions around voting, like the Electoral College. I think is uh, is is a mess in terms of proportional representation. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about this for for a long time because there's a lot a lot wrong with the American political system. <laughs> In terms of voting, especially, it's something that uh, I will I will end by saying that it's something that the left needs to be talking more about. Because as you can already see, like I'm 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 uh, almost tripping up on how many different possibilities there could be, and how many different possible like policy directions we could go for. And I think that just hasn't been explored very much yet. I mean, how many places can we think of? Uh, how many like intellectual spaces where? Uh, they're talking about what a socialist electoral system might look like and, and how we might implement it in a real sense, like from today to tomorrow, not just in like a theoretical, once we get there, it'll look like this, you know? So it's a really good question. And I really urge people to look into it a lot more. I think it's something we should all talk about frequently. Great answer. Brian, have you got any thoughts on this? Oh man, too many things, too many things. Um, <laughs> how many directions you can go with that, honestly. But, you know, one thing I... I think of a lot recently, and you know, we did a video on this earlier today. Was sort of the the actual difference between a a Biden and a Trump administration. One of the really important things to consider is, you know, how much the presidency is on train tracks, so to speak. You know, like how much of what happens there is actually overdetermined by material conditions. I think, you know, people who want to make the case that there is a sort of considerable enough difference between Biden and Trump um, are having a really good time this year in making that case because. With something like a pandemic, you know, that is really one of the things I can think of where it does make a difference as to the sort of personality of the individual in the White House. Not only when it comes to, you know, signing executive orders and things, which Trump most certainly, you know, never did and didn't accept it anyway. Um, rhetoric also uh, plays a, a key difference. You know, they are just words ultimately, but it does, you know, change how things happen. When it comes to, you know, things like policy abroad, I honestly can't see that being that big of a difference and that's an important one isn't it because we're talking about like being anti-imperialist here i mean we, we talked about this earlier right like um we were talking about you know scientific marxism and if it's truly scientific you know one of the things you should be able to do with a scientific theory is make predictions right so i made a series of predictions over you know the next four years what we can see or what we would see with a biden administration and i'll see how many of them come true but um you know we've just seen in Bolivia, the uh, movement towards socialism, mass party, take power again after the uh, U.S. installed a right wing. Um, Anes, right, she was a dictator installed by the U.S. government. The mass MAS just took power again under Arce, right? So I think we can safely say that uh, a Biden administration will attempt a coup there again. Uh, I do believe that. I think that will happen. I think the same thing will probably be happening all across um, Latin America. I think you'll see the same thing. In Venezuela, you'll probably see assassination attempts, you know, all the way across Colombia, you'll see things get worse. Nicaragua, you'll probably see things get worse, right? Because, you know, domestically, uh, the differences between a Biden and Trump administration, there are a few. But when it comes to international policy, when it comes to sort of US imperialism, I really don't think you're going to see that many differences. I think the first speech that Kamala Harris actually gave was, you know, talking about giving an extra $38 billion of aid to Israel over the next 10 years. I think that comes down to like $10.5 million a day. So you can see that, you know, there's, there is a sort of ingrained international order here with the United States at the head of that I think 
you know, to a degree is on train tracks. I don't think it even, uh, there are some things here that it doesn't matter who sits in the seat because ultimately the the true power structures um, within the country stay the same and they're still there. I spoke about this before, you know, um, uh, the right wing likes to talk a lot about a deep state and that's too conspiratorial, but I do think they're kind of onto something, but I don't call it a deep state. I call it a permanent state. What I mean by this is just simply people at the NSA and the CIA and the FBI, right? These are people that are not elected. They outlive um, individual presidents. And some of the people at the heads of those institutions have been there 20, 30, 40 years. So I think that's where the real the real power base is within those institutions. I don't even know how much power rests in the Oval Office. But even then, those individuals are still just puppets to an ideology, uh, predominantly, you know, capitalist liberalism. Yeah, no doubt. The thing here is that, you know, I think this is why you're always going to see a trend towards the sort of worst elements of US imperialism. And it's the idea that, you know, any of these heads of the NSA, CIA, etc. can take all of their plans. And if they let's take the heads of the NSA, CIA, etc. under Obama, they probably had a load of plans and a load of things that they wanted to do. But Obama wouldn't approve because of the sort of personality aspect of who he was. So, you know, the heads of those agencies can just sit on those plans. They can just sit on the plans for four years, eight years until a new president comes in. You know, Trump, suddenly they take them to Trump and all of them get passed. Right. This is why you'll always see a slide towards the most sort of barbaric and destructive elements of U.S. imperialism, because ultimately, you know, the corporations and capitalism will always benefit from it. They always want it. That's why I think you'll see coup attempts under the Biden administration also, because, you know, those material pressures are still there. They still want the natural resources. They still want um, governments in Latin American companies that are favorable to U.S. imperialism. And they they will still do anything to meet those ends. What you've just said there about Obama not doing something because that doesn't fit his character profile ties into exactly my response to the Marxist project when he said that under the Biden presidency he's going to be overtly less oppressive to the left. And that's true because, you know, Donald Trump ran off the idea of being overtly fascist. And he's running off the idea of being like overtly towards the left, whether he is or not. That's what he's running off. Both of these play the same role for capital and bourgeois democracy. But it is interesting and I do think intentional that more than ever, the United States needs a president who is cracking down less on the left right now because of how popular, say, Marxism, leftism, anarchism, uh, you know, all of that is on, on the left right now. You're both right, and those are interesting observations. And going back to trying to picture, like, a United States and an America with socialist characteristics and this not being a popular enough discussion on the left in general or comrades in the United States. That's definitely true because at one time in the United States there were Marxist intellectuals out there and just people producing theory. We we, we went over William Z. Foster's Towards Soviet America on, on a Theory Thursday episode, didn't we, Ryan? And that's an outstanding piece of theory that does talk about, you know, a, a Soviet United States and I think that that's something that you comrades should engage with more and you know try and apply you know that text and see what you could bring out and what would work what sounds interesting you know come out with these good ideas and these visions and this is why Che Guevara was so impressive Fidel Castro you know Malcolm X 
all of these people were visionaries. They pictured the future, and we can't really do that being over in the UK. What we can do is hopefully encourage, even if it's not something have like us as comrades can like implement. It's definitely something that again we have to do when we ha- have to start and building these ideas and inspiring others. Yeah, just a few more thoughts there. Have you got anything you, you want to throw in there as a response, Mark, to this project? Yeah, I mean, really, I just agree. I really agree with that. I feel like the left is kind of in its infancy again, especially in the United States. Uh, I, like you said, uh, there, there were times where uh, there was a lot of productive activity going on on the left here, but we're kind of cycling back because there was a fallout, you know, we lost a lot of uh, traction for uh, the past several decades, and we're kind of coming back now. And I think there's a natural tendency to first get our bearings, you know, to understand the theory and uh, uh, really sort of refine our critique of capitalism. And I think that's that's good and needs to continue to happen um, because, you know, there's never enough uh, refinement that could that could happen in that particular area but sooner rather than later i think we need to we do need to focus on the the creative elements of leftism sort of envisioning a a future beyond capitalism and you know not just drawing on the visions of the past which were in their own sense quite spectacular um but sort of developing some new for the conditions that 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 we find ourselves in because some of it will work some of it will not and we need to adapt and uh i think even rhetorically speaking when you're when you're conversing with someone about leftism you'll eventually if you if you convince them on the whole critique of capitalism element run into the question of okay well what do we do next And, and the left just needs to have more answers for that i feel like let me let me get in here a sec because you're more correct than you know right so (laughs) Um, I talk about this idea a lot and I call it, you know, the politics of the anti. So it's the idea that, you know, because of, you know, capitalist realism has restricted our imagination such that everyone knows what they're against, but very few people actually know what they're for, right? Very few people actually know what they're building and working towards, but it's very easy to be against something, right? So whenever you see, you know, protest signs or slogans or whatever, it's always, you know, I'm against this, right? They're either anti-abortion, anti-tax, anti-mask, anti, right? It's always framed around what they're against instead of what they're actually for. Yeah, absolutely. I love that politics at the anti because... Yeah, it is so too. I mean, you look up any electoral politics, that's all they talk about. If you, if the Labour, they talk about why the Tories are so bad, the, the Tories say one thing, you know what I mean? They just throw it back and say, and it's the exact same thing, the Democrats literally run off not being Republicans and the Republicans run off like not being Democrats. Every single four years, it's just a cycle. It's because people don't believe that they can achieve anything. So why would they be for anything if they're not that inspired that they can they can do something? But what they can do is be against something and complain. Because as you've said in the past, it's so easy to complain about something. It's so much easier to throw a tantrum whenever you're upset and people are upset because they're frustrated they're, they're angry they're confused you know it's a lot harder to again have hope to or even the time to invest in achieving anything in life because you're so alienated from everything and that includes education and information that's why what you're doing uh, with your YouTube channel is so important. That's why we're grateful to be speaking to you now. And that's why we encourage you to keep keep it up. And 
yeah, it, it'll be great to see how these ideas develop because all of this is new. All of this, you know, Agitprop, all of these podcasts, all of these, you know, leftists on YouTube, it's all new. We don't know what it's going to achieve over 10, 20, 30 years when, when hopefully we're as old as Marx and we're producing content. What's that going to look like? You know, we're, we're marching towards progress and every single one of us should be engaging again in this education and class struggle. I was going to say, I also just think it's there's something sort of innate or no, I don't want to get too philosophical, but like, I think that's just something more fun ultimately about knowing what you're against or destroying something. I think of like, if you, what's more fun to like build a sandcastle on a beach or just to like run and kick one, right? It's just way more fun to run and kick one. I think there's something about destruction. It's just a little bit more fun. So knowing what you're against, it sort of, you know, draws people, but you, you really do ultimately have to build and actually work towards something better. You can't just ultimately base your whole ideology on I'm not that, right? I mean, what's mostly ironic about all of this is like, I'm a Marxist because I'm anti-capitalist. <laughs> so like, I don't know what I'm, what I am more like, am I a more anti-capitalist or am I more like communist i don't know but one thing's for sure is people are dying people are getting blown up people are suffering people are getting tortured in guantanamo bay people are living in poverty they're living out on the streets they're living with you know flipping disabilities they're being alienated from society from social structures from social interruptions i mean the the miserable people committing suicide it's a hard world out here and it's because of capitalism that's one thing i know for sure but us as Marxists and, you know, this ideology of historical materialism that's important to make sure that we're not being dogmatic. So it's not just that I'm against capitalism, it's that I'm a dialectician and I can see from a scientific point that this is the cause to all of the problems and which are just, you know, expressed there. That's, again, that's why it's so important to engage in these theories and these texts and produce our own because... We have to teach each other. School is not going to teach us this. They don't want us to know this. So with that in said, we'll move on to how other leftists are producing content and what that's doing for the class struggle and education and class consciousness of the proletariat overall. So I just thought, like, because there's a lot of taste for, like, BreadTube, YouTubers, and, like, a lot of left-wing creators on platforms like YouTube, with them being, like, labelled as, like, liberals, opportunists, and, like, generally, like, reactionary, and some of them are even being, I don't want to name names, but obviously, well, in fact, I'll name one, but like, some of these are seen as, like, being harmful to Marxism, socialism, or unity in general. With like many like socialists on these platforms, for example, like condemning and like who was it Thoughtsland on it recently condemned and like he turned you know mass the hundreds of thousands of people against like Marxism and Marxist labeling this as like tankies being you know sectarian. So like, have you given this like phenomenon of like BreadTube and those YouTube creators like any thoughts? Like, do you think that like BreadTube is like in the long run? like a force for good in the proletariat struggle? Or do you feel that it's ultimately like negative and something to push back on with like in the form of like statements, education, you know, better content in them or like educating these creators directly? I know that there's a few questions there, but like I'd love to hear like any announcements you've got on these frustrations to some people, but educational tools for others. 
Yeah, um, I will say firstly that I wish I was more acquainted with BreadTube. Uh, over the years, I've watched more content and followed more creators, but I'm not as well versed on all, all of the the discourse that's going on there, and I really don't follow it as much as I do, really as much as I should, mostly because I just don't find myself having the time. But in terms of like, uh, yeah, I, I am familiar with with this tension um, of, you know, sh- should there, should we sort of be careful about the kind of content that's being put out because, because it could be potentially harmful or it could misinform people who are trying to learn the theory earnestly. And I think generally my approach is that the more content there is, the better, even if some of the content is not necessarily as well thought out or researched or maybe it, even misinterprets some of the source material that it's talking about, as is the case, you know, with, with some of the bread tubers who are explicitly anti-Marxist or, or whatever. But I think that, again, because we're in this formative stage, as we've been talking about, where we're sort of starting out building a loose network, I guess, um, especially with the way that YouTube works with with its algorithm, you know, you watch one video and it's hauntingly good at predicting what else you may be interested in watching. and I know that it tells me that a lot of my viewers come from other channels uh, like uh, the Gravel Institute, for example, just launched their own project. And uh, I know it's been met with some criticism because it's not sufficiently leftist. And it's true that it does have like it's strategically decided to uh, position itself closer to the center than to the left compared to some of the other left tubers and uh, leftist uh, YouTube channels in general. But I think that it has a valuable space in in this sort of loose network or conf- confederation of creators because uh, it, it opens a discourse. And I think that as a network, we're engaging in uh, a constantly productive exercise, you know, that uh, we're producing the narrative and rebuilding it and tearing it apart, you know, and, and sort of refining it as we go. And uh, to the degree that maybe we find that some people's content is limiting or inaccurate, I think that's where you can come in and make, you know, response videos or offer criticism. And, you know, I fundamentally don't believe that there is, uh, that it's really possible or worthwhile, especially within the context of leftist tendencies to definitively prove one position or the other as more correct or closer to Marx or more accurate to our current circumstances. I think that there's value in exploring all of the possibilities, whether they're Marxist or not. And especially in those in those like fault lines, in those areas of tension between different tendencies is often where we are able to refine our own positions and better understand what it is that we're arguing for or what it is that we generally support. So I think that that tension is necessary. I think that that the uh, the volume is necessary too of like building a place on YouTube or on other online spaces where leftist content is just there and viewers and people who are interested in you know learning about this stuff they have a place to go to watch things and at least start thinking about them and be exposed to some kind of argument. Yeah, so I, I think I, I lean more on the side of positive than negative, even though I I do have disagreements with some of the content creators uh, in terms of their interpretations. But I don't think that those are, you know, uh, unhealthy or should get in the way of the broader picture, I guess. 
Yeah, good point, sir. I'm glad that you you raised the the question about the gravel institute because I've been asked about that lately, and that does genuinely seem like you know a, a good institution. And I mean, we we talk about how Bernie Sanders would be better than America, but I truly believe like the gravel institute would be a lot better um, alternative for Americans and definitely inspiring. But as to how likely the the Gravel Institute could become the dominant institution of the United States. I don't know like how that could happen really, um, but as, as positive as that would be. But again, as long as people are working towards progress, that's something we have to support as well as at the same time educating ourselves so that we can better educate them and then flip them, maybe turn them a bit more radical. So, right. When you're seeing YouTubers producing not maybe the most scientific socialist ideas out there and maybe response videos being better to call them out when they're not correct, that's good. That's important. You do see that a lot, actually, especially like there's there's a YouTuber out there who does like, like amazing YouTube videos of like all the PragerU videos that you see. Cause they're like one of the most disgusting propaganda network for like the United States out there. But like yeah. the, the response videos that they do debunk and all those videos are definitely important for just truth, for people's understanding of what world we're actually living in, because so much of it is misinformation. And that's why you see, you know, even people on the far right known for the fact that the mass media is a load of lies and it's a load of confusion. And that's true. It, it just doesn't have to be because of the conspiracies that they're believing. So all of these YouTubers, these BedTubers, although they can get some slack and there can be arguments on both sides of Twitter about these platforms, it is always positive to engage with negative aspects of anything. Um, so... Um, I think that it's right for people to criticise them, and I also think that it's it's important because it's a part of combat and liberalism. But if people don't criticise or call out what's wrong, then we're never going to get to the truth. And this is a process. This is a brand new phenomenon of YouTube videos, left wing videos. We're we're making history, and so all of us again, it's our duty. I think as like a virtual vanguard to comment on videos to if they're good support them if you disagree with some things leave a comment on the video and, and engage with the creator or even if the creator never actually gets back to you your comments there for people to see and engage with your thoughts on that i mean you see it all the time people can spend days arguing with each other on reddit and um, going back and forth but, uh, but like, again, it's never an argument just between two people. There's, like, thousands of people co- coming along and seeing these discussions. And we have to value that as this is, like, education that us as politicians are doing amongst ourselves to educate ourselves. So, uh, again, that's why I emphasize, and we're not just saying subscribe, like, upvote, share. And we're not just saying it again out of, like, ego and like self-validation and we're just hooked on dopamine from upvotes and comments no it's about education and it's about building a future together and that's again why i emphasize on everybody who's listening now or will be listening in the future we'll always speak to you we'll always get you on a podcast 
we'll engage with anything you want. If you want to engage with a certain theory, let us know. We'll do the theory and we'll educate it again. Get that out and then you can spread that on your social media so that you can inspire people locally on yourself. That's what it's empowered. That's what's important. We're not trying to waste our breath here. But some people are doing it out of opportunism and, you know, being reactionary and this synthetic left as well. Talk. We had Caleb on the show talking about this synthetic left and that's real. There's a lot of counter-propaganda out there and, and it's our duty to counter cultural hegemony, to counter this propaganda that's out there. Have you got any reflections on that? And, and in fact, I'll ask you a direct question. Like, is there anything, any advice that you would say to people who would like to maybe start producing some content and or like how would you encourage them to do that uh i so two, two things uh, one kind of goes back a little bit um the one of the most influential books for me that i read this year was uh, pedagogy of the oppressed and i can't recommend it enough to everyone it's very short and very beautifully written it's by paulo Freire. i did a video on it and it doesn't do it any justice but it's like a brief overview um and to me, one of the points that stuck out a lot was the uh, sort of the mode of engagement that he talks about when it comes to education and sort of like interacting, exchanging ideas. And he basically develops this uh, thesis that uh, education in the conventional sense is very top down. You know, you have a teacher who in, in the conventional, especially like liberal society is, is, is seen as the holder of the information and the student as sort of an empty bank that information is deposited into. And you have like this unilateral non-dialectic relationship uh, where there's uh, a one who knows and one who doesn't. And the transfer of information is not horizontal at all. And I think that that is not just true for, in terms of like, you know, political education across spectrums, but even like internally with leftists, you know, there's a, a tendency to come into a conversation uh, viewing yourself as the teacher and not as a student or a teacher student, which is what uh, Freire talks about, is the idea of being both at the same time and the idea of learning and teaching and teaching and learning and how two or however, however many number of people are engaging in a discussion, preferably more, I think. They're teaching and learning. And I think we as leftists need to understand that and sort of internalize that. And when we interact with each other, when we're having conversations and when we're having disagreements, especially, it can be really challenging to uh, go into an argument or a conversation, acknowledging that I may have something to learn from this, uh, even if I think that this is entirely wrong. And you have to, you know, it, it's it's a trained thing because we're trained in the top down method of exchange, right, uh, of the, the, the deposit method. And uh, we need to sort of sort of uh, come out of that and become more horizontal and collective in our um, development of ideas and theory. And the second point with regard to making content, I think, like I said, it's good to have more content uh, in general. And uh, the caveat to that and my advice to people, I guess, is to make content about what you know. Um, so you know yeah. if you're if you're in if your interest is like film right or uh, video games or something that's, you know something that you're knowledgeable in that you can also you know uh, present in like a novel sort of Marxist or, or leftist of any kind of perspective that's what you should focus on at least to start with and 
you know, this is something that I I struggle with honestly all the time because I always have the this imposter syndrome sentiment of like I don't know enough about this subject to talk about it, but to the degree that it's possible uh, adhere to the things that you're most familiar with uh, because that's where you're probably going to have the most success in sort of developing not your own understanding, but also helping others understand whatever it is that you're teaching about. And I think venturing beyond that is good and very important, but to do that, to, you know, make content on something new that you're not familiar with, I would encourage taking the time to familiarize yourself with it before you go into it. And that's like, that's part of my process in general is uh, before I make content, I normally read like, you know, a book on it at least or articles or, you know, as much literature as I could fit within my schedule to, uh, uh, you know, at least say that, okay, I've read enough stuff here that I can summarize what I've read uh, for people who maybe haven't read it. And that's really, I mean, it's, it's really, that's all it is in terms of like making content. And uh, yeah, that's really my, my biggest advice is make content about what you know about or what you've read about because yeah, it'll mitigate the potential for misinformation. Flash points. Yeah, so it was on BreadTube, right? So the first thing I want to make sure we're not doing is um, misjudging the size of the problem, right? Like if if I, I don't, I don't, I'm not super familiar with BreadTube. I've seen, you know, a couple videos from a couple of people, um, but I don't want to make a huge issue out of it if it's not a big issue, right? And even though there are people out there that are, you know, an issue, right? There opportunists exist, revisionists exist, right? And we should, you know, definitely engage in ideological struggle with them at all times. There's no doubt about it. But I don't want the left to become a sort of, you know, group of people that sits around and sips the tea all day. You know what I mean? Like there's there's work to be done and stuff to achieve and like like the anti bread tube politics of the anti business. Right, yeah. I mean you don't want to just become a, a place that just talks about how bad bread tube is, right? And with that response there to the Marxist project on education and educating others from that book and how to educate others. So I just wanted to share my thoughts and I mentioned this earlier. What we're talking about isn't just education for the sake of education or just teaching for the sake of education. It's not, again, we're not trying to flex like some kind of intellectual prowess over nothing. It's nothing like that. What it is, it's, it's learning historical materialism it's be it's learning dialectical materialism it's and, and what this is this is a tool of it's a scientific tool so that we can better analyze society and society's development and the development of social structures and we we look at the base the superstructure we analyze again history another class struggle because history is directed by class struggle and we know this through historical materialism just as charles darwin shown us the theory of evolution this is just you know a material foundation of your environment shapes not just you as a species through evolution but the materials actually shape us as a as a social creatures and, and a social force and and you know social groups and capitalists know this ryan's always said that you know the capitalists are like the greatest marxist in the world because they know how to control us by the means of capital and wealth and 
and use and work and, and our labor hours and all of this to dominate what we think, how how we think our culture and make us better wage slaves. I mean, that that's just a fact. So what we're doing by engaging in education is, is learning how to better refine this tool to see the world in which we're living in. We're trying to find the truth against the world of lies and misinformation from the media, from our schools, from churches telling us all of, all of this about religion. You know, all we are of brains in skulls that's like evolved to have consciousness out of the Big Bang made of atoms um, spinning around in a galaxy that's spinning around in the universe. We're just, we're just grey matter in a skull. We don't actually know anything. All we have are senses, eyes, you know, tongue, smell, even. We only have our senses. And Marxism is the sense to make sense of the world. It's another, it's like, see, it's like a sixth sense. It shows us the truth, just as like you can hear somebody shout at you. You can hear what they've said, but because of the thought process that went on in your mind, you've just misheard that because you were thinking of something else or because there was a, a noise in the background. You heard what they said, but you also heard the noise in the background. And this noise overwhelmed what you were trying to listen to. But Marxism tells you that if you want to hear what's being said over this loud noise in the background, this noise, we can see that as being Facebook, we can see that as being CNN, NBC, all of these bourgeois propaganda news outlets, you know, the New York Times, that's just this extra noise. But Marxism tells us that if we want to hear what's actually being said, then we have to think differently. And we have to think differently by putting a cup around our ear by putting a hand around our ear to block out all of this excess noise so that we can actually hear what this person's saying to us. But to hear them, we have to think differently rather than just listen to everything that's coming in. We have to think differently to put it over our ears so that we can hear them. That's materialism. It's knowing that to, to hear the truth, to see the truth, we have to make material change. We have to think differently. That's why it's an ideology, because it's how we think about this world. It's how we, we analyze the world through this scientific method that allows us to see the truth, because we only have our senses. We're limited by them. So it's up to us to engage in this philosophy. So that's why the education is important. It's not just a fun activity. It's not just a hobby that we like reading about Marxism. We're trying to make sense of the world. Yeah, I mean, that's why I end my uh, uh, all of my videos with 11th thesis from Theses of Feuerbach, you know, uh, about the point of the war of uh, philosophy is to actually change the world. And I think that that's where Marxism sort of stands out from some of the other intellectual traditions. And it's certainly, I hope, what the point uh, of education is for Marxists who engage with it. Uh, so yeah, I agree completely. Definitely. Yeah, there's that saying, right? It's like um, theory without practice is impotent. You know, practice without theory is blind, right? I mean, theory theory is only you know useful insofar as it directs correct action. So going back to what you said there, the Marxist project, and we are nearly towards the end now, towards a Q and A section. But I just want to respond to this because it was important when you said how important it is 
for people to educate others on things that they know about. Well, that ties into what we're doing with Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. Me, myself, have been lumping for many years. You know, I've, I, you know what? I've slang more of the most potent dank merch in my city. You know, I've, I've been there. I've done that. I've, I've lived that flipping thug life. You know what I'm saying? I know what it's like for them lumping pros out there who are never going to get a job. They're never going to be working class. They're unemployable. And they just don't want to work for the capitalist and be a wage slave and they make a lot more money doing otherwise. We've done episodes lately with like sex workers and this phenomenon of like, are they actually sex workers? Should we support them? Should we not? But these are being kicked out of their Marxist revolutionary organisations because of that. So what we're trying to do is bring or show revolutionary potential in the lumpen proletariat. Obviously, Malcolm X himself was lumpen proletariat. He used to sell joints, and his mate, best mate was a pimp. It said that like he'd probably done a bit of pimping in his time. You know, even the Black Panther Party organised with gangsters and got support from you know their local gangsters. It's important that all proletarians come together. So I wanted to, so so when I done this and started it up, it was to show potential, not just in the lump of proletariat through me, but also with the guests who we bring on an interview and show what they're doing for the international proletarian struggle and just how loving and empathetic they are to fellow human beings, whilst at the same time, we are being ostracized from revolutionary organizations because we might have drug problems, we might, you know, have mental health problems, or we might just make rev- like organizations look bad. You know, all of these things are real. So we wanted to, to bring that out to people. And that, you know, that's all I'll say on it, really. And I'll leave that open to any questions that people have got at the end. Really important that people focus on what they're good at. and then. Even if like you're just a cool person to watch a film with, a movie with, and you might be fun and you might talk at the right bit and make people laugh, that's a good quality. So you can always give your opinion on like films. Mark Fisher done that a lot in Capitalist Realism, didn't he? Um, he, he? He reflected on TV shows and films and talked about his analysis and... Again, you might be somebody who really likes music and it's, and it's good to listen to music to. You can produce some kind of content where you're just listening and talking about music. That's all good. We're all comrades out here. It's it's always good to like find people who are good to chill with and watch things with together, you know, and, and that's part of building communities. And the best thing about doing this podcast was the defense that we've gained along the way. Um, and connections and we, we catch up with all of our guests from time to time we love them all obviously genuinely love here for for all of our comrades love for all you for listening and, and again support another comrades in the server this is important what we're doing so with that being said we'll just finish up on an outro from you the Marxist project and then we'll go into Q&A uh, well, I just want to thank you and thank the uh, International Leftist Library um, for making this happen. I think this is a really productive and engaging discussion. And I'm always happy to do things like this. So just as, as further uh, reference, if any of you want to do anything like this again, I'm, I'm very open to doing it. Uh, and I encourage everyone who's listening or will be listening to uh, like you said, to to do uh, similar things 
to work on the kinds of things that they're capable of working on. And yeah, I think that's how we will be able to grow as a movement or a tendency or however you'd like to call it. So yeah, again, I very much appreciate the uh, the opportunity. Thank you, international leftist community. Thank you, Marxist Project. I have enjoyed this. This was great. We're down for this whenever. Just let us know. Again, we're down when, for whenever with whoever. It's so important what we're doing here. So we always have a guest sign off with like some plugs, like just asking where can people follow you, find your work, and where can you be found on social media, anywhere you do want to be found on like any of these platforms. Is there any organizations that you think people should go and check out? You know, any of that would be like hugely appreciated and we'll make sure that it's in our show notes for our podcast so people can come and support you just as you've supported us in, in, in this project as well. Yeah, uh, well, first of all, I, I encourage people to join the International Leftist Library. I think it's a very useful resource for people who are learning. There's so much content here. Uh, it's it's incredibly Definitely. worthwhile to be a part of uh, of the server. And of course, also follow uh, Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. I, I think that your content is very meaningful and is so easy to listen to. I was just listening to it for a few hours earlier. And uh, yeah, oh, uh, both, of, both of those uh, places, please check them out. As far as myself, um, or rather, I don't know, myself may not be the best, the best term there, but uh, The Marxist Project can be found on YouTube primarily. You could probably just search it into the search bar and you'll find it. And then there's a Twitter account that's supposed to be more active. It's not super active. I maybe go on there like once every few weeks. I'd like to make it more active, but I just don't have the time. And beyond that, I don't really have any social media spaces. But if you want to reach out to me in terms of, you know, helping with the channel, maybe contributing your capabilities like writing a script or helping with editing or animation or whatever it is, you can reach me at themarxistproject at gmail.com. I very much welcome anyone's contributions in any capacity. A lot of people have helped me uh, grow this channel in a lot of different ways, and I'm very thankful to all of them. Uh, and I guess if, if that's something that you have the ability to do and you're interested in doing, I do have a Patreon. And of course, all of my patrons' contributions have been really, really helpful too. Uh, as someone who uh, uh, struggles financially and struggled financially even more at the beginning of last year, uh, that kind of contribution uh, went a long way to keeping the channel going and allowing me to make better content. So, yep, those are my plugs. Oh, yeah, the, the struggle is real, <laughs> I'm telling you. Patreon support will go a long way. We would 1 million percent produce better content with um, more support. And what we want to do is get to a point where, like, if we have, like, enough money, we can rent out a base in the city centre so that we can actually base build and then have our comrades live in there and live and breathe in revolution 24-7. This is a dream that we're, we're going to start towards. So we'll just sign off. Again, thank you. Where you can find us is our... Website lumpen.libsyn.com, or you can find us at patreon.com slash lumpen podcast. We have a Twitter as well at lumpen underscore radio. So, yeah, please follow us on all of them. We'll engage if you're 
do give us some feedback. That's an easy way to gain yourself a retweet. But no, I, I, seriously, we love engaging with people um, and getting support. It's really great to know that people do find where you spend a lot of time on and, and energy. It's good to know that people find that valuable. And we really hope that people have found this valuable. So with that being said, we'll go into Q&A. All right, so um, what we'll do for the Q&A is if you do have a question, please first type it in in the VC discussion channel um, and then you will be muted once it's your turn. Um, also, if you cannot VC, then add a short notice that you cannot VC before you before your question so that we won't waste time reading it out. With that being said, the first question comes from Exiled Monkey, so I'm going to unmute them. Hello, Exiled Monkey. Cool. Uh, What's up? So my question is just a quick one um, directed at whoever wants to answer. Has the U.S. done anything good in the 20th and 21st century? Not good, obviously, subjective, so, you know, whatever you consider for the movement. uh, My quick thought on that would be the U.S. as an institution, definitely not, because the U.S. is um, a bourgeois dictatorship. Um, I'm talking about the U.S. as a state. The individuals of the United States have done a lot of good things. There's a lot of good things that people do every single day that they don't have to do, whether that's just being a you know a good neighbor, whether that's um, just, just being thoughtful. These are all important things in the world, and the people generally are good. The people support each other all the time. You see this through mutual aid. You see this through food banks. I don't know if you've got them in the United States. The people do try and be good when they can, and, and they don't have to. And, and and there's a lot of things like even, you know, doctors, nurses, teachers out there who are working you know, going above and beyond just out of the love and of, of the fellow human beings. But as for the state itself and the state institutions that the United sure. States is, definitely not. It's it's a force of evil. It's one of the most evil, destructive, parasitic things in the entire world. That's through America. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to follow. But I, I think, yeah, there should be a separation between the United States as a, a political institution and, you know, America in a more broad sense. Because, of course, there have been a lot of positive movements that have come out of the United States in the 20th and 21st century. I mean, you've got the movements of the 60s and 70s, which uh, gave birth to a lot of leftist uh, tendencies, leftist thought, both in academia and outside of academia. The uh, Occupy Wall Street movement in uh, in the post two thousand eight recession period. So there's you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of influence influential uh, events and groups and institutions within the United States that have done I think positive things, uh, especially in terms of developing you know the leftist movement abroad. But I would say uh, yeah in terms of uh, the role that the, that the United States has had, uh, it's been overwhelmingly negative on a global sense and maybe only negative in the domestic sense in the sense that, I guess, like marginally speaking, certain policies, especially in the middle of the 20th century, were 
uh, by force geared towards limited sort of uh, welfare, which is, I wouldn't say negative, but it's not, you know, it's insufficient. So there's not much positive to say about it other than it should have been there in the first place. And now it's not even there anymore. So, yeah. Yeah, let me just define like good and bad here, right? So I think this is fairly universal among Marxists. I mean, I, de I define good, the, um, that which brings us closer to proletarian revolution, and bad, like that which inhibits or, you know, prevents proletarian revolution, right? So from this standpoint, then the US would not have done anything good in those centuries because, you know, every, um, every, every nation, every country, you know, you can find the United States backing, arming, supporting um, enemies of proletarian revolution, enemies of true Marxist socialist movements. So I definitely have to say that they've not done anything good from that point of view. But if you want to use, you know, good and bad in sort of a more generic sense, then, you know, even a stopped clock's right twice a day, right? So I imagine, you know, even by chance, they must have done something somewhere that wasn't totally bad. But, you know, make no mistake that, um, you know, the US imperial order is headed by the United States, right? Right. So if that's everything, the next question comes from Feasting on Dobbs. They asked, what is the potential for revolution in imperialist core nations? And what is the role of leftists in these nations? The question here is essentially talking about third worldism. Right. So the idea here is that, you know, um, is the quote unquote first world proletariat actually um, equipped to uh, attack the imperial core from inside the imperial core? Right. Or are we dependent on, you know, um, people waging protracted people's war or something like that in quote unquote third world nations? Right. And I go back and forth on this question. You know, sometimes I feel one way, some days I feel the other way. I think. What you have to understand is that, you know, we're living at a time where propaganda has never been stronger. It's never been more hegemonic. The reach of the United States has never been, you know, everywhere. So I think, you know, revolutionary potential of the of the first world proletariat, uh, so to speak, is diminished. Does that mean it's impossible or can't be achieved or is, you know, no hope at all? It doesn't, for sure. Um, it's just going to take more effort. And, you know, a sort of more laser beam focus on where we should be looking and should be acting. Um, there's another question fairly close to this later on, which I really want to talk about, because me and Shibi was were talking about this yesterday. Um, but I think the problem is when you look at, you know, the sort of first world proletariat within nations like the United States and the United Kingdom, I just don't see so much true revolutionary potential there but if you look to sort of the what they call the global south or latin america etc they have much more active much more virulent you know true left movements uh, so i don't think it's a sort of ideological question i see it as a purely practical question of where in the world are the the marxist movements with the most chance for success right and i see just more of them today in the what they call the global south but that doesn't mean it's always going to be that way and it doesn't mean it has to be that way it just tends to be how things are today yeah i, li I like that point uh at the end about sort of rejecting the universality of the conditions i think that to sort of attribute a particular characteristic in the global position to one country or another I think that it misses out on, you know, 
the fact that these circumstances change over time. And I think, for example, like in the United States, the potential for a more powerful leftist movement is sort of expanding and, and growing today in comparison to the last several decades, especially since the 90s, um, which is not to say necessarily that revolution um, in the traditional sense is, is, going, is, is surely going to happen. But the, the movement alone could become a, a, a sufficient force uh, in terms of influence and cooperation with other movements around the world. And I think now more than ever, this sort of coordination, this transnational coordination between different types of leftists in different parts of the world is more achievable. And I think that even if in the United States, there are a lot of seemingly insurmountable obstacles for uh, a complete uh, transformation of society, you know, within our lifetime, um, that doesn't mean that there can't be a powerful, uh, you know, organization and movement here that uh, could lend hands, you know, to to its neighbors in the south or to the east or to the west, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's what we should be in the practical sense. What we should be more, more focused on is what potential exists, you know, and, and focus on that more than uh, can we get to any kind of terminal end stage from here. Yeah, absolutely agree with both of you. Additionally, my thoughts would would be to to add on to your response and say, when we ask ourselves what potentials are there, and then like plan around that, the question in itself is entirely and extremely deeply philosophical, and it's philosophical because we can't see the future. We can use scientific materialism to make a prediction. We can use philosophy to make a prediction. But ultimately, as we say, I mean, I think Thomas Sankara talks about this when he talks about building realities and potential futures. I mean, this is what we do with our life force, with our energy. When we shape the world through materialism and our labor, we're creating a new reality it's never happened before we're creating a new universe out of our free will whether you argue about whether we've got one or not but i think we're creating new realities so insofar as is there going to be a revolution in imperialist countries firstly we have to recognize that each country is going to be different that's why i asked about socialism with american characteristics earlier because each country is going to be different um so Maybe a protracted people's war would work somewhere else. Maybe sometimes they need this dual power to come into play and then, you know, move in through the electoral politics. We don't know. One thing we do know is the future's up to us and our life force. And you have to ask yourself that question in how much of your energy and your life force and your will you're, you're willing to put into the revolution. Are you going to be at it all the time? Are you going to agitate all the time? Are you going to educate all the time? Or are you going to martyr yourself? All of these things are things that could happen. We don't know which one is the right answer. We can't know what's the right answer. All we can do is try to make the most informed decisions that 
makes sense through understanding um, dialectical materialism, you know, to increase the chances of, of a better world. We don't know, but one thing's for sure is it is up to us to be talked about this earlier, as Ryan said, in the Philippines with the MPA and their struggle. They could defeat imperialism out of their country, but imperialism will continue um, throughout Latin America, throughout the Middle East. But, but if we if we knocked it out of in the belly of the beast in imperial countries, imperialism would cease all around the world. So it's the solution to the end of imperialism, but whether the practice of like an armed rebellion in the United States is the correct one. We just do not know. I think it's worth a try. The next two questions will come from Grax. Oh, yes, can you share So I've listened to you and listened to many leftists say this common argument. Uh, I think Marxist project mentioned that so my question would be, will leftist organizing be actually better under Biden? Because the more I research this topic, I just I just still can't find an answer. It seems that it's just not true or someone's hiding something from me. Can you explain your so, views? Can I just ask you a follow-up question on why, why do you think that that's not true? And then that can help us explain a better answer for you. Uh, well, I guess because leftist organizing is not something that is being done uh, like it, it was suppressed usually historically throughout their whole history. So if you have if you have two guys that represent the same thing, just one of them is, I guess, diff of a different taste, then how would this be different if they would suppress anything that uh, like hurts them? their interest and stuff just i guess in a different manner yeah. but that's for one and for two the whole less real thing is a nonsense but uh it, it's a different topic i just need to listen about organizing because maybe you'll tell me something new and maybe this is a actually a lesser evil point that actually exists. yeah i mean i think uh as someone based here in the u.s i think um there's there's an obvious truth to us uh people who are perceiving this from a marxist lens uh that there structurally is not going to be a lot of difference between biden and trump uh and and just historically speaking uh from one administration to another there are not necessarily a lot of upheavals and changes um i think like in the 20th century you could maybe point to some administrations that were uh, very effective in passing specific types of policies and legislations that were either positive or negative. Like you could look at uh, Reagan and say that he was very effective at deconstructing a lot of labor protections and a lot of uh, regulations on the market. And that was a pivotal moment that his administration heavily influenced um, and then you could say maybe the same of uh, his predecessors who did put in place certain labor protections and regulations against the market. And I think that that acknowledgement is necessary. And I do think that in understanding the, those distinctions and those historical moments, 
we can maybe draw uh, some differences between Biden and Trump. Of course, the difficulty here is that uh, we're still speculating because we don't actually know what Biden will do yet. Uh, and and um, given his sort of uh, interest in saying whatever will get him the most support, it's really difficult to pinpoint what it is that he'll actually end up doing. And I, I, like you pointed out, I think that it's quite possible that he may do many of the things that have been done in the past by administrations of different kinds of uh, persuasions in terms of like American politics. But the reason why I said that it may be easier to organize under Biden is really more like in the negative sense that it may be harder to organize under Trump. And that, that's because, uh, because of uh, the kinds of statements that the Trump administration has made that specifically use language that paints the left in a very uh, negative sense. And of course, like, you know, centrist Democrats have a tendency to do this as well. But the, the way in which they approach this issue is, in my opinion, different, uh, different enough that it becomes a different reality for us on the left, because Trump, you know, and and the people who are loyal to him in the executive right now are uh, uh, ha have said in the past just year, you know, things like uh, anti-fascism is terrorism, which is a, a very different message from uh, the one that the Biden campaign has put out. Now, the Biden campaign has also said that, you know, uh, it, it denounces any kind of protests that are not like peaceful and abide by the law and order of, of American society, which is its own sort of conservative element. Right. But I think that that there's a difference between what Trump uh, has been saying and what Biden has been saying. But, you know, it's still all speculative because we don't know what it'll look like. This is just my thoughts based on the kinds of language that both candidates have used. Yeah, uh, the Trump ran on being overtly fascist and being against leftists, whereas Biden can't do that because that's not what he was running off. So, I mean, yeah, the two sides of the same coin, but it is just like a PR stunt, isn't it? Just they're just advertising themselves differently. Right. So, the second question is also from Grax. So, go ahead and ask your second question. Oh. Yeah, and it's kind of connected. I guess this would be to Shebe. So um, how is Trump exactly fascist and how he's, uh, how he's specifically hurting the left in a way that Biden or Bernie or someone else can't yeah, or so, won't hurt the left? Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to admit to that. You, you did just call me out there because I don't think that Trump is fascist i know that i have said that he is but what i mean by that is i don't think that he's politically educated enough to even know what fascism is but what he is is somebody who understands the or so he's being told that the fascists love him and the fascists do love him because his policies have always been against anti-immigration he's, he's been renowned to be you know overtly racist he is a capitalist, but yeah, he, he's not overtly, he's, he's not literally a fascist because he's not smart enough to know what it is. He is the person that played the role when the state needed 
to turn towards fascism. I believe at a time when when Bernie Sanders was gaining support and Bernie Sanders represented like a democratic socialism and he, you, you know, in, in some ways did help spread class consciousness. People understood that he was a ruling class and he was the working class. That differentiation is so important in people's minds for, for a few of those reasons. Again, he's not overtly fascist, but he's literally just filling in the role for this, like, WrestleMania entertainment that is, you know, US politics. Yeah, I could just sort of talk all over this issue a while, for a while. Uh, first of all, I don't I don't think I agree with Shibi here on the role that Bernie Sanders played in the left, right? I think he's... Uh, definitionally an opportunist, right? I mean, these people, they adopt the language and the iconography of revolution, but ultimately his position... Yeah, so, sorry, just to defend myself before you carry on, but in the same way that Trump wasn't fascist, but he was running to, um, to obviously, so to, to get the fascist vote, Bernie Sanders isn't like a Marxist or a socialist. I don't think that he understands what any of those things are either. But again, he was running off that vote as much, as well as a good person that he might be, you know, to the extent that an imperialist can be. But go on, sorry, Ryan. No, I just think that, you know, uh, those kind of people, ultimately what they do is they, they adopt the, the language and iconography of revolution and then they, you know, sheepdog people into a sort of bourgeois electoral system, right? And I mean, I'm not, I'm not even going to give Bernie Sanders, the credit you are there, right? When you say like he doesn't know what Marxism is, yeah, I think he does. I mean, he's he's been in the Senate what fifty years. He went to the USSR. Like he's not ignorant, right? Like he knows what he's doing. He's he's like seventy or something, right? Like he's been. I would hope that he's been around the block enough to know what these terms actually mean. You know, which is why I have less sympathy for him when he calls himself a socialist because he knows what he's doing, right? He isn't just this sort of innocent, clueless child wandering through the world unaware of what he's doing right like he's seen true revolutionary movements in other countries in his lifetime and he's still adopting the language and iconography of revolution while sheepdogging people into you know a a bourgeois electoral system right i think that that brings uh, the conversation to a more structural point right like you can be like i i agree i think that bernie sanders uh understands leftism better than a lot of other us politicians and uh if we have if we believe like you know his 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 biographical past he used to be even more left than he is now but the reason that he is the way he is is in like on in, in the public uh image is because it's 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 like a, essentially a strategic calculation for him you know that uh, uh being in the center is really the only place you can be in in the United States as a politician, even if you are like a committed Marxist, um, you cannot achieve the kind of uh, political success that Bernie Sanders has achieved without doing the kind of opportunistic strategies that that he's employed. And I think that's the real answer to this question in general is just that uh, the system frames all of the individual actors in it more so than the individual actors have an influence on framing the system. So yeah, whether or not Bernie is a true socialist revolutionary, which I think for most of us, the answer is, is, is definitely not. It's besides the point because it, he, he just simply can't be. It's, it's, it's uh, antithetical to the political structures in the United States. It wouldn't ever really work. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with that also, right? Which is why bourgeois, um, you know, Democrat or, or bourgeois um, elections are, you know, definitionally the graveyard for revolutionary potential, right? Because you, you simply would not be allowed to exist there. All right. So um, the next question comes from Capra, who is unable to read the question um, live. So the question is, thoughts on ongoing people's wars, like the one in the Philippines, how can people from other countries like the US better support people's wars and revolutionary struggles today? Do you want to fire first, though, Ryan? Because I know you've, you've got thoughts on this. Um, yeah, for sure. I think everyone should support, um, you know, CPP, MPA, for sure. Uh, I love them. I watch documentaries on them. They're fantastic. You know, when it sort of comes to providing material support, I'm not even sure how to go about that. And even if I did know how to go about that, I probably would not be telling people in a forum like this how to go about that, right? So, like, uh, I have also have a degree in cybersecurity, right? So I know, I know that, I know how these things work, right? Like I have a decent understanding of the, you know, global surveillance system that, you know, the NSA and the CIA operate under. CPP, MPA, uh, much love to anyone fighting protracted people's war all around the world. Honestly, I think um, even if you don't consider them, you know, whatever, ideologically poor, pure or any nonsense like that, you know, I will always align myself with that which is the most practical right and that's what we should be looking at here we should be looking at results right that which works we should align ourselves with um it should just come at this from pure pragmatism the marxist project have, have you got any thoughts in the top of your head of that yeah i i mean i i want i wish i knew more about um i i just have such a peripheral knowledge of uh the issue in the philippines in particular but i think to to a broader point yeah, same. um i i think uh, it, when it comes to these types of movements and uh, uh, what we can, we as outsiders can do, uh, you know, to help is really more from a theoretical perspective of sort of uh, engaging with the people around us and using those scenarios as educational points to uh, transform people's perspectives on anti-imperialist struggles which are often painted in such a destructive and negative light. And uh, I think that to a degree, that sort of ideology and its effect on public opinions on those movements can have a significant sway on the success of the movements in general. I mean, you know, the, the international popularity of any movement or struggle does have an influence on its, uh, on its successes. And so I think that when it, when it comes to what can we do in, in the most immediate and practical sense, it is to educate ourselves on this and push back against the imperialist sort of narrative and the ideologies that are constructed around these movements to make them seem as a particular type of negative element instead of, you know, what they really are, which is, you know, emancipatory struggles. Yeah, well said, well said. My thoughts on it, again, I don't think I know enough about these struggles to, to comment enough on it, but what I will say, despite that, is I will give my opinion open, honest, blunt. It's probably not correct, but I am going to say it nonetheless because it's what I think, going from the information that I've you know, picked up, 
And again, it's important that even though people aren't saying things that are 100% true, these are thoughts that people have. So, you know, if I'm wrong now, that's something that I should be engaged with so that people can educate me better. Me and I were talking about this for quite quite a bit, actually yesterday, with regards to the Philippines and the MPA and their struggle comrades in protected uh, protected people's war you know trying to liberate the philippines from an actual dictatorship you know brutal violent oppression i mean the palestinians as well it's all tied together anybody who's involved in self-determination we have to support um especially in the belly of the beast because they're victims to our country's policies uh, to their to their foreign policy to imperialism we have to support them so that they know that they, they're supported by the international community and they're not just going to be victims all their lives. But again, in that same sense that I've already said, then we have to defeat imperialism within the belly of the beast. So I do think that whilst they've got the right to self-determination, I think a lot of the contradictions and lack of support from people on the left towards these armed struggles or is because they I think that they're probably right in thinking the the necessary struggles, but they're insufficient. So I think that people think that these comrades out there in love and solidarity, these are fighting the actual struggle against imperialism, against like the strongest militaries in the world. Like they're almost throwing their lives away. But what good is it? Like, would you rather live as a slave? or die as a free human. That's what it is. It's it's not bowing down to your oppressor. So we have to support them. We should support them. But we should not rely on them to fight our fights. And it's our fights because they're peaceful. They're not fighting us. We're fighting them. We have to put our fists down. We have to put our weapons down. But instead, we're, we're, we're relying on them to take the weapons from us, or you know, again, again, I obviously haven't thought about this enough. I can just fill time here if you want, just responding to chat. So yeah, it's definitely the Philippines is in a crazy situation, but you have to understand that like the contradictions of you know U.S. imperialism are directly in their face, right? So a lot of people, you know, inside the imperial core don't really fully understand the the violence that, you know, imperialism requires. But if you live in the Philippines, you know, you're under no illusion about this. You know, you see it every day. It's right there. It, it can't you can't hide from it. Um, I think, you know, the, the contradictions are just much more raw there. And um, if if, you know, protracted people's war is truly the best uh, option, then then we should support it. Right. I'm. Again, going with pure pragmatism. Whatever works, uh, I'll, I'll, I'm with that. Yep. It's also important to note that, you know, places like the Philippines are incredibly uh, rich when it comes to sort of national resources. I think the last figure I saw was they have something like $1 trillion of um, untapped natural resources. And that's, you know, you can very quickly see why multinational companies are, are moving in there really, very quickly. And that's the whole point about these poorest nations on the planet is they're actually not poorest nations on the planet. They're some of the richest nations on the planet. It's just that they're so heavily exploited and all of their material wealth comes out and is extracted through mining or forming peasantries and then 
taken all the farmers' flipping foods through, you know, hustles done by Monsanto when it keeps these countries locked in poverty, and they give them a ruling class to do rule as tyrants and actual dictators, you know, through military coups. These poor countries, people, I have to stress, are some of the richest in the world. I will also say that I have to support, um, you know, CPP, uh, MPA, simply because you know, the multinational corporations in the area and the Duterte government themselves admitted that the reason that they haven't been completely successful in what they want to achieve is because of the CPP MPA, right? So what they're doing is practical. It's working. The corporations hate them for it. And that's why they're actively cracking down on them. Right. So that just shows that, you know, theory, correct theory applied correctly through correct practice um, really is the uh, correct way to fight, you know, U.S. imperialism in such countries. All right. So the next question comes from Malaria Trump. Okay, great. Uh, what are your thoughts about China as a growing imperial power and them reaching enough influence to take in the position to be the upcoming empire to replace America in a sense? Like uh, them being the, in a way, like the next America in a way. Like uh, do, uh, being such, I don't know. Can, like, did you get it? Yeah, you mean about them becoming the next global superpower, essentially? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Can we give open and honest answers and people in, in, in our audience appreciate that this is our opinion, this is our analysis, and it may be right, it might be wrong, but the, these are deep questions that we're all struggling with. Uh, I, I guess uh, I've been like, this is such a heated question right now. Um, yeah, that, that, and I think that's that, why I said, I mean, please just answer open, honestly, and then hopefully people don't hold any flack against us. It, it's a it's a difficult question and a controversial one, but at least we're being honest. And we, we, all of us here are open to develop our thoughts. Right, exactly. Um, and uh, for me, I... So I've really only recently started uh, trying to read a little bit more about the situation in China, because uh, in terms of practical knowledge on the way their economy is organized and sort of like the, the, their political atmosphere, there's is such a complexity there that it's difficult to reduce to a single perspective, I guess, or a single uh, interpretation. And I think that that right now for the time being is my answer is that it is difficult to reduce it to is china capitalist is china socialist and for for me the uh beginning of that answer can be found in parts of uh, volumes two and three of capital where marx talks about well, at least hints in, in implicit and sometimes explicit forms the ways in which modes of production can coexist and they're not mutually exclusive and even the ways in which the capitalist mode of production can use other modes of production to sort of extract surplus value and expand its own enterprises in like sort of like a synthetic incorporative manner. So when people are having these debates about is China capitalist and therefore a future imperial power or, or now an imperial power, is China more socialist? Will it become more socialist? I think that um, the binary is the struggle there. And I think that's that's it's limiting our discussion because I think it's entirely possible for there to be socialist elements in China and capitalist elements in China. 
and uh, even the degrees to which that fluctuates um, isn't entirely knowable, I guess, because they are abstract concepts, right? And and they're very subjective in terms of their definitions. Um, so I think you could easily point to certain elements of China's foreign policy that is pretty clearly capitalist and imperialist in terms of, you know, the, the uh, export of capital into underdeveloped parts of the world with a very clear sort of accumulation incentive or an accumulation paradigm uh, in the most traditional sense of imperialism from a Marxist perspective. But then you can have the uh, other side of the argument about uh, sort of like the development of productive forces and uh, the capacities that the lengths to which, you know, China goes to actually, you know, build infrastructure. And I think that at least domestically, there can be something to be said about the success and the uh, intentions behind those types of policies. And then beyond that, yeah, I, I, I just think I need to familiarize myself more with the dynamics of uh, China's capital in other parts of the world and how that affects their domestic policies. And my understanding is that uh, even though it is to a degree, it is exploitative, it has a fundamentally different dynamic from the kind that we see with sort of the post-Cold War IMF, you know, Western capital influence on uh, third world countries or under underdeveloped regions in the world. So. Yeah, it's it's distinct in a way, but uh, I I wouldn't quite call it a force for good or a force for evil either way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, uh, I'm also kind of China critical on this. I mean, a lot of support of the of China I see come from this sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend type logic. You know, a lot of people tend to support China simply because you know U.S. imperialism's out to get China, therefore China must be good. Um, I don't accept that logic generally, but that doesn't mean that, you know, I, I would side with the imperialists either, because that's, that's you know, obviously not, uh, I don't know, that's just, I'll leave it there. As we've said, it's important that people have a right to, for self-determination, so if they are truly striving towards socialism, or at least that's what they're claiming to, we do have to keep an open ear to that, it's something that we should do. And again, as as anti-imperialists, you know, as as like you know, Marxist, and we have to support other proletarians in the international global revolution. And there's a good chance that they're being some of the biggest components against capitalism in the world today, and some of the biggest moving towards socialism. But personally, that's what I want. I don't know whether I'm being idealistic about this because I want them to be socialist. But me personally, as you might have tell, like heard, I am a radical. Um, like I would be for a protest, a protest the native people's war in the belly of the beast. You know, the UK and the US. For for me, it truly blows my mind that a country with as much military capability as China to withstand. US military aggression against the world, like they've got carrier killer missiles, they could sink US fleets, they've got nuclear arsenals, you know, so what they could do is send armadas over to Cuba and absolutely smash the, the blockade on the Cuban people who are socialists today and then ensure that they can strive and withstand against capitalist embargoes and blockades and they could liberate Venezuela from the exact same uh, naval blockades, but they don't do this. And whenever I mention this to comrades, people are always telling me, 
Shibby, you're crazy. You're going to start a new world war. You're going to get us all nuked. But at the same time, the people are already dying. People are getting blown up because of capitalism, because of imperialism. I mean, look at the MPA. These are dying, fighting imperialism. It's already happening. This war is class war. We're already engaged with it. So when there's countries out there who are socialists or claim that they're anti-imperialist and they're not actively fighting against the United States, it boggles my mind. Like, I couldn't do it if I happened to be like um, a, a head general in like the flipping People's Liberation Army of the United Kingdom. Yeah, would absolutely smash naval blockades for all socialists all around the world. And I would absolutely nuke US navies all around the world so that they can't impose, you know, sorties on, on Libya and flipping all, and Syria and just, you know, the Middle East and all of this for the exploitation. We have to fight them. So if I was truly socialist and I had a nation that was socialist, we're not just going to sit in our country and develop ourselves as as like actual Marxists. We have to fight imperialism globally. So to see somebody not do that, that's ultimately the biggest um, fundamental thing that makes me question whether they're socialist or not. But at the same time, that could be because I could be some kind of like absolutely just angry, bloodthirsty madman who just wants to like, actually defeat the United States military or at the same time I could be principled and think that that's the only thing that necessary to defeat US hegemony so you know it's 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 one of those things it's up in the air but I do want them to be socialist and know that um my point my point is if they were if to you were become to become the, the next, next what sorry if, I, was gonna say, I think this question can be answered fairly simply historically if you look at sort of the history of China under Mao through Deng through you know how it is today I think uh, it's, it's fairly clear yeah because that's one of the things even Mao one of the things that he done during the revolution in China was to bring all of these smaller provinces together China wasn't united at the time of Mao was it but one of his greatest achievements was uniting China was it not AMT yeah alright so um two more questions um, so one question from Capra could you go ahead hello hello um, okay so just a little question for the, the Marxist project um, uh, um, which thinker or thinkers um, do you see yourself or would you want to make more fundamental videos about aside from Marx and Lenin? Uh, yeah, I guess uh, I, I'm I think I'm coming close to the end of the fundamentals of Marx series uh, because I'm finally finishing making videos on the main contents of volumes two and three of Capital. And then beyond that, I'm not entirely sure what I have mapped out. 
I know that I want to do a video or possibly a few videos on Althusser, and I want beyond that might want to explore some of the uh, international uh, politics theories in Marxism. But as far as like focusing on a single thinker, I just I'm not sure. I'm obviously open to suggestions, but the fundamental series was really designed to help people familiarize themselves with like uh, the contents of Capital, you know, volumes one, two and three. Uh, and I don't know of any other thinker that has that kind of like central uh, body of texts that would be worth focusing on for a series. but. If there is, I, I'm obviously open to it. It's just that it requires so much preparation that it'd have to be like a really concerted effort, I guess. All right. So, so the last question sure. is going to be from ACAP Cortez. Good evening. You're live on. Yeah. Hey, can you guys hear me? Yes. I, uh, before I, before I start, I just want to say to the Marxist project that it's really cool to be able to be on this uh, on this Discord and communicate with you guys. And I, I've watched all of your videos, and I think they're really good. Thank so you. keep keep up the work. Well, kind of changed my question. I'm not gonna lie, but uh, I guess I first wanted to see what an internal uh, external analysis towards Americans' fascist phase would look like because i mean from what i've seen and what i personally believe is just that it, it, it eventually will reach to that end and even with leftist organizations and with leftist uh, unity trying to fight against it it seems that we would have to find more external support from countries that would be willing to to to, to lead that and i guess it's just more of a concern about um whether we can trust that. And I, and I think someone already discussed towards that about fighting against uh, U.S. imperialism and uh, fighting against the, the next phase of, of U.S. fascism. But I don't know, for, for me personally, it's just like it's hard to, to, to get to that stage in which we do fight against it when we have liberals telling us um, different things in, in different sides to that that kind of skew the whole uh, the Yeah, I mean, like I had said before, um, I think that the next stages for the left and the United States involve cooperation with the left beyond the United States. And I really think that's just true for every country. And uh, just from my experience here, uh, you know, and on, on my channel, there is a tendency to uh, sort of establish those international connections. And they're all very primitive at the moment. But yeah, as we start to sort of enter the later stages of capitalism, if you want to call them that, or at least a, a, a more chaotic, uh, degenerated form of uh, liberal polity in the United States, we're definitely going to need to rely on support from, you know, movements abroad, movements closer to us. I don't think that any solution, any kind of adequate response or organization, can be done in uh, an isolated manner or like highly localized, you know, it's going to have to be very well coordinated. And I think that um, the, the, the positive end of that is that um, we have the means to make all of that happen. Now, living in the 21st century, these kinds of coordinations are so uh, easily available to us that it's just a matter of going through on them, you know, and, and establishing those networks and, teaching ourselves and 
transforming the localities that we're all in. I also want to just just take a minute to sort of understand what we mean by fascism, right? Because I think a lot of people define it differently, and this is why questions like this become kind of gray. Um, because of, you know, definitions, essentially. Um, I think it was in State and Revolution, right, when Lenin talks about, um, you know, an analogy for capitalism being sort of a, a, a gorgeous luxury house, right? And you walk in and you see the finery and you see the luxury and everything looks great. But ultimately, in the basement, you have the true power base of uh, capitalism, right? You have the sort of the, the military, the police force, the violent elements of capitalism that's required in order to keep capitalism going, right? And um, you can sort of tie a thinker back to your previous question, right, about um, who the left should um, really look into. And I vote uh, Antonio Gramsci here. Uh, if the prison notebooks, you want to talk about, you know, consent to be ruled, cultural hegemony, essentially. But I think a good way of understanding capitalism here is that capitalists want to rule ultimately through soft power right they want to rule through control of the media the propaganda networks so that their control is somewhat covert right fascism for me is when they drop this facade and they rule not through the soft power but through you know direct hard military power and you know the the contradictions within capitalism in the imperial court i think it's only going one way and it's only going more towards that um the more time goes on um, I think even if you, you know, look at the United States over the last four years, you can see that they're, you know, actively throwing people into vans now, right? So you, you can see that, the, you know, the tensions are heightening and um, the capitalist state, the more it breaks down, the more it's going to rule by, you know, open, open violence and open, open force. I just want to say that that support my argument earlier, which is why you're such a good co-host and why I love you, comrade, is because asking about, you know, why Trump was more overtly fascist, Trump overtly saying, if you desecrate these statues of slave owners, then you're going to get like 20 years in jail. We're just going to throw away the key. And again, that's just an, another display of overt fascism. It's strange because there are kind of ebbs and flows to it because, you know, going back, don't forget that, you know, the Black Panther Party were, you know, literally assassinated by the FBI in their homes, right? And that's going back uh, many years now. And we haven't seen, I don't think we've seen something quite like that. I might be wrong. What was that? What was that neighborhood that got bombed? Oh, the move bombing, Philadelphia. Yeah. Again, but I know the next time we do see something like that is when the SES come through my door and, and litter me up with loads of 9mm bullets from a flipping MP5 or like some other like, um, you know, YouTube or something like that. That's what it's look, what it would look like. Just to put that into scale of, you know, Fred Hampton being assassinated, that's literally like like me or like Brett O'Shea like getting assassinated. And I do think about these things seriously because... It's the exact same thing. It's just like the Marxist project, you know, touch wood, ending up in jail for like and by like like some fascist governments because he's producing left wing content and then suddenly he's forced to write his prison diaries. You know what I'm saying? And all of us comrades are supporting him saying free the Marxist project and then we're just stuck reading all of his diaries from jail. And and like you know when it, like that's what it's like just to put these things into perspectives of of history. It's not just history. It's not some story. That's that's what it would look like today. And and 
and, and you know when and I, I don't put it past the United States to do something like that one day one day they might have to start throwing us into jail we don't know but these is that's why people protect the, themselves online that's why they use alias aliasness that's why they use VPNs and that's because the people don't trust the government and that's because they've historically locked us up and assassinated and murdered us. It's class war. Yeah, I mean, honestly, no matter how bad you think the uh, global surveillance state is, it's it's ten times worse, no doubt. Sorry to interrupt, but might I ask how we could also stop, like, external capitalist influences? Because, I mean, if you see, like, the militias that they're creating, like the Proud Boys, you see that much of the leadership is also externally um, outsourced. I mean, the, the guy's a, a, a Cuban gusano, if that's, if we don't use that term, I, I, I'll apologize. But, I mean, that's how I see it. You know, they're, they're not just um, trying to, they're not, they're not just going through these phases anymore they're deliberately using militia to try to suppress any movements and using any form of capitalism that they can whether it's national or international the president in brazil is is recognized as overtly fascist because yeah you have police going through the streets just absolutely just having firefights with with people in in vuvelas and there's nothing more mask off than you know, you know these you know kill squads. With that said, I think that that's going to be our last question. So we really hope that people have enjoyed this tonight. We certainly enjoyed it. We hope that they found it valuable. Um, again, the master project always there. We're going to probably be doing this for, for for decades. I mean, I insist that you do master project because it's only going to get better. You know, again, support goes a long way. Um, it's great that you would listen and support us, but again, we'd also love to hear from you one day as well, and and you, you know bring out your unique qualities. Again, special thanks to our host, the International Leftist Library. Special thanks to the Marxist Project. It was great to speak to you, comrade. Again, we will personally, you know, continue to to support your work and learn from your work as I have done in the past. Um, it's so so well said and um, so dense in information but so easy to understand and again to all of you in the chat I'll give you a, a shout out as well we've got Craig the recorder he's probably a robot so there's no point in me shouting him out but we've also got ACAB Cortez Exile Monkey Feasting on Dubs Visa Got No Jams Horatio Capra Malaria Trump Rick Sanchez of course Chairman Myself, Shibby, The Marxist Project, The, the Zen Marxist, Tiddy Scooter, The Lightning Lord. Thank you. I mean, it, it is our pleasure doing this. But again, we'd happily do this anytime. Just give us a shout out. We've got The Marxist Project on YouTube, The Zen Marxist on YouTube, or is it lumpen.libson.com, patreon.com slash lumpenpodcast. Again, The Marxist Project has one also reach out to us tell us what you think and also we'll have the international leftists linked in our show notes as well so that people can go in and join that community again you've heard a few questions from them very thoughtful comrades on, on a server that again has so much informational source material um to, to learn from 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 marxism anarchism 
Um, and, and there's even some liberals on the server too, which is excellent. And that's what we do in late stage imperialism is we, we let these like, um, you know, libs in and, you know, discuss as long as they behave and asking questions sincerely. It's important that we're not being anti-sectarian, we're not being classist, and we're just generally loving our fellow human beings. I just talk to chat a sec. So there were, you know, there were questions in the um, chat that I never got round to, and this goes for anyone. You can DM me any question, and I'll make sure to answer all of them. Because there were really good questions I saw in the chat um, that never made it through to me. So if you, you know, Vanessa, especially, I don't know if you're listening or whatever, but hit me up, DM me all those questions. I'll answer any and all questions I can. Um, same goes for anyone. DM me about anything, and I'll I'll answer any questions and everything. And this is the materialism and why it's good to ask questions as well as answer them, because all the questions that we, we are asked and then we're forced to think about as we produce more content, we remember that we're being asked about a certain thing and we know that people want to know these answers. So again, as we've said, it all builds towards a global class consciousness. So engagement is super important. Thank you all in the chat for joining us. But with that said, we'll love yous and leave yous. Thank you, everyone. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you all. It was great. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Workers and lumpen of the world, unite. <laughs>